You are now entering the Transit Zone. Welcome to Transit Zone, more inquiring conversations from coronavirus world. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop at Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live, work and are recording this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Yungabar people of the Narang District. We recognise their continuing profound connection to land, water and community, and we pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. This time, the ravaging of the arts and culture sector in Australia during the COVID crisis. Writer, arts journalist and critic Alison Crogan will join us in the Transit Zone very shortly. Margot, how's your coronavirus world this week? This week, I entered my mother's chaotic office to clear it out, and I pulled out all her theatre stuff, which is just massive. She kept every program of every show she went to. She went to a lot every year. Her acting scripts. She was a lifelong actress in community theatre. She's got a whole collection of, of plays from Waiting for Godot to David Williamson's Corporate Vibes and The Great Man. So I've just had a, a re-experiencing of a, an artistic and creative life this week. That sounds like a treasure trove to me. That's an archive you've got to keep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All I can report, guys, is that I've had the pandemic cut, a number four. My partner did that for me. Off the hair came, hit the bathroom floor. And I don't think I'm going to go back to a hairdresser. Perhaps that's one of the things that coronavirus world's inducing, that we're going to change some of our habits. I don't think I'm going to get my hair cut again outside the house. Tim? Actually, a bit similar. I haven't gone this long without a haircut since my son was born. Actually, twenty, almost 24 years ago, I remember my hair was down almost to my waist and the day before he was born, I got it all cut off. But <laughs> it's not quite that long at the moment. I've just spent a week having a bit of a look around my local area here, which is ostensibly called the Arts District in Melbourne, where we have a lot of galleries and theatres, etc. And and the associated restaurants and cafes that go with that. And it's a bit sad having a walk around there at the moment. It's all very quiet. All the usual comings and goings inside the Melbourne Theatre Company offices right opposite where I live here. We're just not seeing those people. Often you could look out our window and over into their window in the evening and you could see them rehearsing shows on the top floor of the offices there. But haven't seen that in months and haven't seen the familiar faces of the acting fraternity walking around as you often do in this area. Real tumbleweed territory. You're just down from the Malthouse and the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, the Rust Sheath Building. Chunky Move is headquartered there as well. You really are in the arts precinct there, lucky thing. Let's meet Sarah Ward. Her stage name is Yana Alana. She's an independent award-winning cabaret artist. I wrote the words I wrote the poetry I wrote the whole script and isn't it grand I sang the songs I blew my own horn I made the music and without a band I had to do it on my own Don't you know Cause life is a one-woman show Hi, my name is Sarah and I am an independent freelance artist and I have intersections between performing arts, writing, singing, workshops, teaching and producing. 
I work in a sector that means I self-produce my own work. I don't audition and I work with other people and, and collaborate. I create my own stage creations, which are always subversive, disruptive and political. And I like to create connection and a sense of community. I was in the middle of creative producing and performing in my very first variety show. I'd been approached by Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras to create a show and they went in with a co-commission with Art Centre Melbourne. It involved a huge cast. It was the first time I've ever worked with such a big group of artists and there was a team of about 15 people involved, which included those who were in the production aspect of it, like the directing lighting design sound, costume design, projection art, and then the artists themselves. And we just managed to get our season in at the Seymour Centre in February. And then I started to get the sense that things weren't going so well. I called Art Centre and I said, I'd like to talk about what happens if COVID-19 means we can't do this season. And at the time, I don't think they were ready to have that discussion. I don't think anybody was, but then Dark Mofo cancelled. The Melbourne Comedy Festival was cancelled, the season was cancelled, but we're in negotiations at the moment for a go-ahead coming up who knows when, because who knows when we can have another variety show of that scale, which requires a huge audience. But I think I was ahead. It was me and quite a few other artists that seemed to be ahead of the game because we could see that our whole industry had collapsed. What we were looking at was stop performing, stop doing what you do. Your work's finished now and we don't know when it's going to happen again. And that's terrifying. It's not as terrifying as having people that you love on life support systems. People talk about how disruptive COVID-19 is to sport. The AFL needs to start happening. We need to start making the money. You know what's also important is ballet. They're athletes. It might be art, but they're athletic. Circus, they're athletes the musicals, their dancers, the Sydney Dance Company, the singers, the opera, their crafts that need to be nurtured, the MSO, the musicians, the same elite training and practices and craftspersonship as the AFL. Why aren't we discussing it? It really is as if the arts doesn't exist in Australia. It's invisible. I bought the props. I made my costume. I bought my own flowers for opening night. I got online, updated my status. I gave myself over 1,000 likes. I had to do it on my own. Don't you know? Cause life is a one woman show. Yes, Yana Alana, Sarah Ward, from her one-woman, Helpman award-winning show, Between the Cracks, Life is a One-Woman Show. Alison Crogan, welcome to The Transit Zone. Hello. You've just heard Sarah describing her experience, of course, had a big show there ready for Sydney, but the COVID crisis hit hard. What's your first reaction to that? Well, that's like many other stories I've heard from many other friends and acquaintances working in the live performing arts, which are the most hard hit by the COVID crisis, obviously, because public gatherings are not possible now. Every 
part of the arts has been hit. The Sydney Writers' Festival was obviously cancelled, I think, three days after it announced its program. Writers have reported launches that they were planning of their books have been cancelled. I've had a few cancellations of things that were coming up in June and July to do with a new book that was coming out. You can still read books. What you can't do is gather in public with lots of other people to enjoy live performance. So all the theatres, all the dance companies, everyone has lost their year's income. Individual artists have lost basically their whole year of expected income, things that they've worked for years to set up and perform. It's been a disaster. It's catastrophic. Our focus today will largely be on artists, performing artists, visual artists, all sorts of artists of different kinds. But let's remember that much larger adjacent set of people that support the art as well, who are employed by the arts, the ripple effect way out, including things like tourism and hospitality, those other sectors of the Australian economy affected. I'm thinking of all the designers, the directors, the ushers, the cleaners, etc. Alison. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge economy out there that is supported by the work of artists. I lost my gig, which was a thing put on by the by musicians originally, but a lot of artists. It was a website. They recorded something like 600,000 people losing $350 million worth of jobs in the first few weeks of the corona crisis. This is families, people who, who are already in you know, uncertain circumstances, losing months of income. The thing about artists is they work from gig to gig usually. They are itinerant workers. In some way, like France, there's actually a recognition of the itinerant nature of particularly performing artists, but most artists. And they have what they call an itinerance allowance that goes to people who work for a certain amount of the year in paid work. And then they're propped up by payments from the government. A lot of independent artists in France and independent performance companies depend on that. I mean, there's not a hope in hell of that ever happening in Australia. Why exactly are artists falling through the cracks? I mean, presumably they can get job seeker. What is it about the, the current system that means that artists can't get JobKeeper or something like that? Because, like, they're sole traders, aren't they? That's their business. How come some sole traders get it but artists don't? Well, it's terribly complicated, Margot, because the problem with being an artist is that there's none of the bureaucratic systems actually can deal with how your incomes work. So you're always kind of ticking other in every kind of circumstance. Some artists like myself are sole traders and presumably might be eligible for JobKeeper. I'm feeling very grateful that I haven't had to go through the rigmarole and try to apply for it. But it can be very difficult for an artist with a completely kind of roller coaster income. You can be paid a lot of money at some point and then nothing for 12 months to prove that they, their income has been lost. That's one thing if you're a sole trader. The other oversight is people like actors who aren't sole traders. They're employed as casual employees. Oh, um, God. They're employed for, you know, two, three months and they go from gig to gig to gig. So they don't count at all as sole traders and obviously don't qualify. But there's lots of ways in which artists fall through the gaps as individuals. The other issue is that the arts were already in crisis when the pandemic hit after years and years of cuts. 
that became progressively worse under the Liberal National Government. The arts are at the worst that I can ever remember. You have to remember that the arts have always been underfunded since the 90s. Arts funding is an index, so it's constantly falling in real terms. You're already talking about a cash-trapped sector. Just before Tony Abbott's government was elected in 2013, as a kind of last hurrah, the Labor government introduced Creative Australia, which was an attempt to actually restore some of the attrition of funding. It was never going to happen, but it was actually the result of years of consultation with all areas of the arts and with state governments to try and coordinate arts funding because it's an arcane and complex area that almost no one is interested in because it's arcane and complex. State and federal governments aren't especially well coordinated in how they deal with it and all have different policies. As you can see very clearly now, the Victorian state government has poured millions into supporting the arts, whereas other state governments haven't at all. Queensland's put quite a bit of money in. New South Wales isn't at all interested. And we've seen the first sort of big casualty, which is Carriage Works, which is the major venue in Sydney for independent arts and a whole lot of other things. And the fear is, of course, that that's only the beginning of what's going to be a cascade of failures unless companies and venues and others are propped up. What happens when all of a sudden creative people and people who love seeing creative work lose that all of a sudden? Is there an extra sort of burden there or do they sort of go inward and and create, create, so we're going to see an absolute explosion of creative works when this is over? When everybody was quarantined and went into social distancing, there was this initial weird kind of thing about Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it was kind of like, well, yeah, maybe. One suspects Shakespeare would have written King Lear anyway. One does. And, you know, most artists work part-time, have families, they have all the same stresses that everybody else has, lack of money or loss of income. And so to expect people to suddenly emerge from... <laughs> You know, like trying to find the rainbow at the end, that's all. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Um, Suddenly the world shifted. We all know the world is going to be different and we all have to adjust in all our different ways. But the idea that live streaming is any kind of substitute for live performance is a misnomer. There's been this scramble to get stuff online. I think various people I've spoken to, particularly intellectual property experts and others, feel it's a bit of a mistake to rush online without thinking very hard about what that actually means in this kind of, you're making a different work of art essentially. You're not making the same art that you would make in a space with other people present. Alison, just picking up on that point about streaming shows, etc. The other day I watched a streaming show, a stream of the live production of Fleabag. Later this week I'm going to be watching National Theatre's Streetcar Named Desire with Gillian Anderson. They've, they've made that available online as well. I've got to say Fleabag was a bit disappointing. It just didn't work really in that space. I was talking to Paul Kilday the other day 
who's the artistic director of Music Aviva, and he was saying a similar thing. He really gets a bit angsty about live stream of orchestral or chamber concerts, not just because it brings that air of artificiality to proceedings where, you know, musicians stand up and bow to empty seats <laughs> in the theatre and that, that sort of thing, but because he, he says something's lost in the creation of the music because the musicians are socially isolated from each other but this is the best we can hope for at the moment isn't it so I was just wondering if this moment of pandemic has made you rethink your views on live streaming or more generally the use of this sort of technology in the performing arts. I'm not against live streaming but I am sceptical about it. Theatre is really difficult to capture on film and there's very few films of theatre that I've watched that I've found really satisfying. It's because as an audience member, when I'm watching theatre, I can choose where I want to look. I can watch the whole stage or just a part of the stage. I'm my own editor. And very often when I'm watching theatre in film, I feel absolutely tyrannised by the camera. One of the best things I've ever seen was... Théâtre de Soleil's The Last Caravan, which was at the Melbourne Festival in 2005. So it was a long time ago. Amazing piece of theatre. I got a DVD of it and I watched it and it was just awful. Everything that was amazing about that performance was completely hollowed out and absent from what was done. But very expensive to do a really good film of a theatre show that you have to somehow equate the freedom that the audience member's presence and eye and attention has in film. And I think that requires a very good director and an awful lot of cameras, which adds up to a lot of money. As we all know, live performance is absolutely about being present, and that means being physically present in the same space as the performers are. You're all breathing the same air. Just being in the room with a big symphony orchestra playing something like Marlowe, all mm. the energy that enters the body. And a couple of years ago, I was in the Roundhouse in London and there was a, a Brazilian group, a physical theatre group, which was astonishing. We didn't sit down. We moved around. It sort of penetrated us in a way. We had swimming pools lowered over our heads. We had music. We had extraordinary stuff happening. None of that was filmable, I believe. None of it would have been conveyed on a flat screen. The thing is about being physically present is it's a lot more than visual senses happening. You're seeing and hearing, obviously, but you're also you're feeling the vibrations in your body and you're feeling the people around you and what they're feeling. One upside of streaming is that it does make performance accessible to people who actually can't get there otherwise. You must be talking to people around the traps. What are they saying about reopening venues, etc.? Like They must be talking about, do we just let people sit in every third seat or something? And, and you know, how do we deal with opening and closing doors and stuff? Are you hearing much about those sorts of adjustments that we're going to have to make as venues do reopen? The first question that people are asking, is anybody going to turn up? <laughs> are the audiences going to want to come back? People will be nervous. I mean, I, I know I'm watching television at the moment, you know, I'm watching something and there's all these people in a room crowded together and there's this sudden thing kicking in. That's not safe. Yes. 
and they're also very aware that they're going to have to think of other configurations. What was the Melbourne Festival, which has just been re-announced as a new festival called Rising, they've just opened up submissions to the 2021 festival and they're talking about doing work outside, they're talking about we need different configurations for audiences and I think most theatres, big venues are thinking about this, how do we do this in a way that's safe and that people are going to feel safe within. I think the real answer is that nobody knows. Since March, the whole kind of live performance industry and culture at every single level from, you know, the smallest independent company to Opera Australia have just entered this zone of the complete unknown. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston, Tim Dunlop and our guest, writer and arts critic, Alison Crogan. Let's hear now from an early career performing artist. I'm Renan Idol. I'm a musical theatre performer. I spent six years training, the last three at the Queensland Conservatorium Griffith University, which gave me a platform to attain an agent, the difficult and uncertain first step for any musical theatre performer. I spent a month auditioning for shows, flying back and forth from Brisbane to Melbourne. I auditioned for Chicago, Aladdin, Billy Elliot, Saturday Night Fever, as well as cruise line auditions, variety of cabaret shows, kids touring shows, and a couple of smaller independent productions. I was lucky enough to land my first professional show, Opera Australia's West Side Story on Sydney Harbour, a week before graduating. It was an incredible opportunity, but like most musical theatre jobs, it was a short-term contract. Most arts performers operate gig to gig, so it's almost impossible to survive without having a so-called muggle job. So after the contract finished, I moved to Melbourne and landed a part-time retail job at Telemarine Airport. This was to be a filler to get by until my audition season was over. Fast forward to March this year and the COVID-19 epidemic. This year alone, Book of Mormon, Secret Garden, Shrek, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Fiddler on the Roof, Everyone's Talking About Jamie and much more have been cancelled. I mean, just before lockdown, I was up for a role in Cats and was a week out from my Moulin Rouge auditions, all of which, alongside Frozen and Hamilton, are now either postponed or pending. I can't even work at the airport right now, though without having had that job, I would have not have been eligible for JobKeeper. The new normal is video auditions. The past two weeks, I've submitted two self-tapes for TV shows to be filmed in Australia and New Zealand. I've been a part of an online video compilation performance and had my fair share of Zoom classes in my living room. I mean, it's hard to describe how difficult it is to encapsulate your live, physical, human self in a three-minute iPhone video. I'm coming to terms with the fact that my industry is going to take a long time to recover. The number of shows on offer will be dramatically cut to about three a year, rather than three every three to six months. An already insanely competitive industry just got a lot harder. That's Runa Nadal, waiting, wishing, hoping, like so many of his peers. Alison, let's put our hard-nosed economist hat on for a moment and just remind everyone what role the arts, culture, 
industry. I know you say that word through gritted teeth in one of your recent writings. <laughs> we'll, we'll use the word sector then, but let's use the word industry, shall yeah. we? In terms of gross domestic product and number of people employed within the arts and culture industry in this country. It's literally hundreds of thousands of people employed directly and even more, I think, something like 2.1 million indirectly through culture, culture and arts, slightly different things. Culture is a big, wide thing. It includes things like the ABC and um, architecture and design and fashion and everything else. The arts is a subset of that. The culture as a whole is worth about $111 billion to the GDP each year, something like 6%. Arts itself is worth about $4.8 billion. It's actually staggering that the arts and culture, along with universities, have been so sidelined in the current crisis. When this first happened, live performance was the first industry to go down. And as they keep saying, going to be the last ones to come back. All the peak bodies reacted very fast when all the cancellations happened and put proposals. They weren't self-interested. They were about culture as a whole, saying this, this is a disaster. We're not going to get through without targeted specific help. And there has been, except in certain circumstances, so little. I still find it fairly kind of scandalous that the Victorian government is doing a little more than twice as much in terms of targeted help than the federal government. What was being asked for by Live Performance Australia was $750 million because they calculated their immediate losses as a, over a billion. Alison, it's depressing as shit, all of, all of <laughs> this, the, this constant, you know, having to justify your existence. Mm. And I think it's about... Australians in particular because I think we go to more artistic events than we do sporting events at the end of the day but at the level of public discourse and certainly at the level of government participation or support there's this real blockage isn't there where it's just very difficult to find space in that public sphere for the arts to be accepted as legitimate. I mean, there's a very long tradition of anti-intellectualism in Australian culture. It goes back, like way, way back, a suspicion of it. My friend Robert Reed is a, a theatre historian. He says he's been doing a lot of trawling through newspapers and things like that, 1800s and even up to the 1930s. It was completely different that people felt invested in the culture of this new colony and Everyone felt they had the right to it and were part of it. And he said, you know, people would write into their newspapers with reviews of shows that were on written in verse and all that kind of thing. There wasn't the same kind of thing that we're used to now where the arts are kind of under constant attack from certain quarters. Part of it is the rise of a middle class that kind of took over culture and made it a sign of their superiority. And so there's that kind of elitist thing, which is perhaps summarised by the opera, which is a highly expensive art form. The Australian opera 
receives more funding than all the independent companies put together. They receive by far the most public money. Nevertheless, it has very expensive tickets. I've spent a bit of time in France where you suddenly realise there's not this this having to prove yourself, as you said, that you, you don't have to justify your existence. It's perfectly okay to be an artist. It's a perfectly valid and valuable thing to do and be. It's valued. Here it isn't. Because the arts are well subsidised, so the big companies like the Comédie Française or other other big subsidised companies receive like 80% of their budget from the government, which means that they can make their tickets really cheap. It can cost 10 euros to go and see Pina Bausch company or something like that, as opposed to $120 here. And that seems to me an enormous difference. It ends up being a kind of political football and, you know, that the arts are all lefty and these things that make absolutely no sense in, in any artistic sense. It makes absolutely no sense to artists this kind of left-right binary. Artists are just interested in the world and they're interested in responding to the world and they respond from where they are in complex ways. I suppose what's really important about art is, is its complexity and because it's a way of understanding the world in a more complex way than we're usually given, especially through news media, which reduces things, reduces human experience to reportage of events. The art can offer something else and other levels of meaning. There's two things I, I feel traditionally. Um, the first is that it's not a real job. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think we've outgrown that a bit. But the second thing I think might be underlying it is sort of a jealousy by people who do mundane jobs or jobs on, on the logic side of the brain that why should we pay people to have fun and explore the world <laughs> and that sort of thing? And sort of related to that, I just wondered if you subscribe to a theory doing the rounds that the government is, is deliberately starving out the arts industry at the moment because they actually want to get rid of it because um, it, it is a bit complex and uh, who'd want that? Well, I absolutely do. I wrote a long piece about that, just looking at arts policy since the election of the Abbott government, how there's just been this constant defunding. And since it makes no economic sense, because it does make no economic sense, you can only conclude it must be an ideological decision. And that's not hard to understand. There's been, you know, for the past 20 years, I've been seeing things in, in the right-wing press about how artists are bludgers, how they're just wasting public money, how they offer nothing to Australian society. None of these things are true. People don't understand actually how the arts economy works. They don't understand that for each dollar invested in the arts, more than $2 comes back into the economy. They don't understand that art is a discipline, it's work, it takes years to learn how to be good at anything. <laughs> and, you know, you're not out there sort of, you know, pretending to be trees all the time or whatever people think that artists do. You know, it's a neoliberal project too, isn't it? Totally I mean, is. you totally know, you, your job in life is not to work out the meaning of life. It's to um, it's to work for a certain amount of money and, and do as you're told. I think that part of it is just that question about values that art offers 
a whole lot of different ideas about value that are not about money. And this applies to every aspect of our existence. We can only think of the environment in terms of its monetary value. All our lives are parceled out in various kinds of ways. It's almost like the only value that actually has any worth at all is money except when it comes to the arts, because the money <laughs> the arts actually creates doesn't count for some reason. So, strangely. Okay, so here's a, here's a question. As we come out of coronavirus world, will those values be questioned by more and more people or will we run back to um, money and circuses? I don't know what's going to happen, Margot. I think all that we know at the moment is that things are not going to be the same, I think. A lot of us have had more time to think, I suppose, and so I see people asking questions about the kinds of things that we take for granted. On the other hand, I see all the conspiracy theories, the kind of craziness that's going on that is equally a part of this, and I see authoritarian opportunism that's going on, and I really don't know where we're going to end up. I know I've been thinking a lot more deeply, but I'm just really excited to get there and um, and consume the cultural and artistic response to this. I really am. There will be one, and there is one already. But yeah. As I said, it will be interesting to see who's left standing after this. There's been a lot of talk about how artists just give, give, give when other Australians are in crisis and don't get anything back in return. Have you seen any evidence that people are trying various ways to support artists and and to keep our artistic and and cultural life going? There's been a lot in quiet ways around town. I'm aware of philanthropists quietly doing quite a bit. Artists are really good at creating communities, particularly performing artists. They exist in communities and those communities in times like this come together and those communities also exist with their readerships and audiences and so there, there has been in a quiet way quite a lot it's not sufficient in terms of you know people's entire livelihoods vanishing but there's an awful lot of goodwill out there and I do take a lot of heart from that. Alison, thank you so much for being with us in the Transit Zone today. I think we covered a fair bit of ground. It is a dismaying thing, but I think we have to have optimism too, don't we, Alison? We do. We wouldn't do thank it. You. <laughs> Alison, thank you very much for being with us in the Transit Zone. Alison Crogan, writer, arts journalist and critic. But stay with us just for a moment, Alison. Margot, what have you been reading this week? I'm still reading a chapter every night of Pema Chodron, The Places That Scare You, and May Sarton, Journal of the Solitude. And I've been watching a series on Apple TV, which is, to my mind, sensational, which is called Dickinson, which is a total period costume thing of of Emily Dickinson. But the soundtrack is ultra contemporary and some of the the moves to the soundtrack are ultra contemporary, lots of bad language, etc. And that combination is just wonderful. So I just watch half an hour every night. Really, really enjoy it. It's a great thing to watch before you go to sleep. Alison, you've been busy. I know copy editing. Has there been just a little bit of time to read? I haven't done a lot of reading because uh, as well as copy editing, I've been working on another draft of my non-fiction book. But I have been watching 
been glued to Penny Dreadful, which is a series I just discovered. It's been going for some time, but a new season has just been put out, I believe. I've just finished the first season and hugely impressed. It's a kind of collage of every single 19th century horror trope that there is from Frankenstein to werewolves to vampires, chock full of romantic poetry and familiar figures. And it's very well done, very good actors, beautifully designed and quite gripping. Worth a look. Getting ready for this to some degree, I've been reading a book called Joyride, Lives of the Theatricals. It's by someone you probably know, John Lahr, who's the son of Bert Lahr, who was the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz, and he was a long-time drama critic for The New Yorker magazine. Very interesting. A compilation, really, of many of his pieces on directors, producers, actors, playwrights. Uh, great reading. And a YouTube that I'd recommend, one of my fave veteran jazz performers, upright bassist Ron Carter, who I listen to quite often, giving a masterclass on YouTube. He hardly plays the bass at all, but talks quite sternly to the young aspiring jazz musos in the class about how he actually practices his instrument. It's very interesting, very rigorous. And he also says to them how he thinks they might practice rigorously as well. So I'd recommend that. Just Google it up on YouTube. Ron Carter, the jazz bassist. Tim. I just started a novel by an American guy who I think is mainly a poet, actually, a guy called Ben Lerner. And the novel is called The Topeka School. It's set in the late 90s and it's about a dysfunctional family in middle America. It looks very promising. But the other thing I just downloaded. It's a collection of essays that you can download for free from Verso Books, and it's called There Is Always Outside. It's a bunch of essays reacting to being stuck inside with COVID-19, so it's very topical. It looks good, and as I say, you can download it for free. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Margot. See you next week. Bye. Thank you very much. Next week, our guest will be author Margaret Morgan. Her 2018 novel, The Second Cure, is about a pandemic that breaks out here in Australia and how politicians, scientists and the public react. Her pandemic in the novel is somewhat different to COVID-19, but there are also amazing similarities. Apart from being a writer, Margaret has a background as a lawyer and also as a microbiologist. So she may be just the perfect person to speak with as we deal with our lives here in coronavirus world. Margaret Morgan next week here in the Transit Zone. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, Transit Zone Pod. Transit Zone Pod is our Twitter handle. These podcasts are now searchable and you can subscribe at Spotify and at iTunes. I suggest you do. If you have any comments on this podcast or our earlier ones or suggestions about how these podcasts should evolve and coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore here in the podcast, please email us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. You can send us audio comments and suggestions too, your own brief audio essays, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, for the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.